God only knows how much I needed to go on the South Africa trip with this team. And he, had, he really eclipsed my expectations on this trip and enlarged my vision and really has been exploding my world with further implications of gospel truth. I want you to take your Bibles to turn to Galatians chapter 4. And when you find that, I want you to stand with me to read God's Word. My aim today is simple. I want you to see how God's plan of redemption fosters adoption. I want you to see how God's providing salvation inspires our redemptive participation. I want you to see that God wants to cultivate in the hearts of his people a heart for the most vulnerable. And my hope would be that everything would change in your heart and in your mind and in your life on how you view life and ministry in the gospel and however you engage whatever God puts on your heart. We're going to read Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is your word. It is not the word of man. It is from you. And you, by your spirit, use it in the lives of your people to do a work in our hearts. And Lord, we trust you now that you would do a work in our hearts by your Spirit, through your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you're probably wondering, who is Mufamuzi? And why adoption? We'll get to adoption, but let me tell you who Mufamuzi is. First of all, let me tell you what his name means. Mufamuzi means, give me a home. It is the name of a formerly abandoned boy that Josh and Marta Mack brought into their home in South Africa in 2007. As we look at Galatians 4 today, and this whole idea of how the gospel fosters adoption, this whole idea of making a home for the most vulnerable, I want to ask really two questions. Number one, what has God done in the gospel? And number two, what should we do because of the gospel? So first of all, what has God done? Now you might ask about what? Well, about our sin problem, about our slavery to sin, our our bondage to decay, as the scriptures say, our subjection to the elemental principles of the world, Galatians 4.3 says. Look there at Galatians 4.3, it says, That in the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That means all the things that everyone knows. And one of the things that everyone knows is that 
A person cannot save themselves. That everyone has sinned, they've fallen short of God's glory, and as hard as people try to work their way to God, anyone who's ever tried it knows it's futile. What has God done about our sin problem, about our slavery, our bondage to decay? Galatians 4, 4-7 tells us. What did God do in the gospel? Here's what he did. God adopted for himself a people for his own possession. That's what God did. Now the context of Galatians 4 is the Apostle Paul making the point about the gospel that all believers, Jew and Gentile alike, receive the same salvation in Christ. Now for a Jew to even be named with the Gentiles in the same sentence or be with them in the same room was anathema to them. They couldn't believe that they would have the same standing as them. And Paul is making it very clear that Jew and Gentile alike are recipients of complete salvation in Christ when they come to faith in Christ. That God doesn't have two tiers of children. There's the natural born uh, children of Israel who when they come to faith in Christ are the, the top tier. And then there are those those adopted children, the, the grafted in Gentiles, when they come to faith, they're kind of tier two. That's not the way it is. And Paul's being very clear about this, about the gospel being for whoever believes. What we see here is that God has provided redemption. Look with me at verse 4 of Galatians chapter 4. It says, at, When the fullness of the time had come... What does that mean? It means that God had prepared the whole world for the coming of His Son at this particular time in history. When the fullness of the time had come. That everything in history had built up to this particular moment in time. When He would send forth God the Son to do what? To go on a mission. To redeem those under the law he had him he had god the son born of a woman human born under the law that he might redeem those under the law god became as we say one of us god became man god incarnate he came to redeem he came to buy up to ransom to rescue those who were in danger due to sin under the wrath of god under god's uh, death sentence basically because of sin now what does this redemption entail here's what we know about the story and I'm going to run you through the five adoption passages in the New Testament including this one but first this is what we know about this redemption that God predetermined our destiny uh, this idea of predestination look with me at Ephesians chapter 1 the very next book Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. The idea is that our calling began with God and not us. 
It was God's eternal decision toward us that determined our destiny. Francis Turretin, who lived between 1623 and 1687, put it like this. This calling is an act of the grace of God in Christ, by which he calls men dead in sin and lost in Adam through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to union with Christ and to salvation obtained in him. God predetermined our destiny. What else did he do? He acted on our behalf to secure it and draws us to himself. That's what you see in the whole idea of redemption that's found in this passage, but also in the book of Romans. Look with me at Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Paul is talking about God's sovereignty in salvation. He's talking about his own kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Israelites. And he says in verse 4, they are Israelites... These are the ones he said, you know, I wish I could be accursed and cut off from Christ so that they would come to know Christ. He loved them so much. He said, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. Now think with me for a moment. The Israelites were the natural-born children of God. They needed adoption like everyone else because they were lost in sin just like everyone else. So the natural-born children of God needed to be adopted by God. He acted on our behalf to secure it. He draws us to himself. We see in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, that those whom he predestined, he also called. Called them by the gospel. We also see that God gives us right standing with him. He he acts on our behalf to secure it and draws it to himself. He sent his son to redeem And then he gave us right standing with him. This idea of justification. That we, in Galatians 4, are are said to be sons. No longer slaves to sin. We also see that God is at work in us, once you're a believer, to make us like Christ. The idea of sanctification. We're heirs, Galatians 4 says. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are crying by the Spirit of God out to God, really in desperation for God, saying, God, we need you. We can't do anything without you. God is at work in us to make us more like Christ once we come to faith in Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What else do we see? We also see that God will, will take us home to be with him forever. There's the whole idea of glorification. You see in Romans 8, verse 23, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8.30 tells us that those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The idea in God purchasing redemption and providing it is that He did so so that we might receive adoption takes us back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, that we might receive adoption as sons. 
Jesus said to his own disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What does the word adoption actually mean? Adoption comes from two words, the Greek word for son and the Greek word for place, and it literally means make a place for a son. Make a place for a son. The idea is that all believers are adopted. None are natural-born children. We don't we are not just born, let's say, into a Christian family, and so we are just entitled to all of God's grace and mercy. Even Israel, as we saw, needed adoption. This whole idea of adoption is very rich. Spirit gives life. God adopts us into His family. He confers on believers the status of children, God's own children. The new status is a source of joy in the present life, but it is also a source of confidence for the future. There is a future home prepared for us by God with God. Now, sonship denotes being a part of God's family. Adoption refers to the way you enter that family. The process of adoption was actually unknown to the Jews. It was very common in the Greek and the Roman cultures. It was the legal institution by which a person would adopt a child and confer on the child all the legal rights and privileges that would accrue to a natural child. One of the most famous adoptions in the Roman culture, in the Roman world, was Julius Caesar's adoption of Octavian, who became Emperor Augustus. So Paul's readers, uh, both in Rome and in Galatia, would naturally have thought immediately of this institution when they read these verses. The language would have conveyed to them this amazing grace of God in taking sinful human beings and making them his, their, his own children and conferring on them all the rights and privileges of heaven itself. Now what's the opposite of adoption? The opposite of adoption is abandonment, rejection, exclusion. See, adoption is acceptance, adoption is blessing, adoption is making room, adoption is providing a place. Adoption is the gospel, how God provides a place for those who would believe. And this grace that is spreading to more and more people because of what Jesus has done brings glory to God. Now, by the way, there are no adopted children of God as an ongoing category. Adoption tells us how we came into the family of God, but once we're there, no distinction is made between those who are at the table. It's just like David adopting Mephibosheth, Saul's son, Jonathan's son, because of grace and mercy. And he was no different than any of his sons. We receive adoption from God. We become sons in God's family, sons and daughters in God's family. Then we see in verse 6 that because of that, Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father so who is crying here not us but the spirit of god in us and he's crying out abba father now when i have heard the verses that talk that that speak of of us or the spirit crying out abba father i've always thought of a dad coming home after a long day of work and 
the little kids running to him and just hugging him because they love him so much. I've always thought more of a, of a comforting cry even, love, Abba, Father, I love you so much, and more of a, a worshipful cry, and more of one of comfort. But this is not a cry of comfort, though there is some comfort involved. This is a, is a cry of anguish. This is a cry of desperation for God's comfort. Seeking God's comfort. Go with me to, back to Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. So by the Spirit of God, we cry. Now in Galatians 4, the Spirit of God is crying out in our hearts. Here, we cry by the Spirit, Abba, Father. And it says in the next verse, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We have assurance from God that we belong to Him. But we're crying out to Him. And, and there's one other place you need to go. Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. It's not just the, the Spirit's cry, and it's not just our cry by the spirit but it's jesus's cry look with me at mark 14 here's jesus praying in gethsemane before the cross verse 35 he goes and falls on the ground and prays that if it were possible the hour might pass from him he's facing the cross god the son is praying to god the father and in verse 36 he says Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It's the desperate cry of anguish seeking God's will, seeking God's comfort. It's the cry of the crucified. It's the cry of the one that has no resources outside of God himself interesting that the doctrine of adoption tells us that we groan with the creation itself in romans 8 23 as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies the gospel challenges us over and over again and here it challenges us to see ourselves as spiritual orphans it compels us to see this fallen universe and our little self-centered kingdoms inside of it as wrong See, the Abba cry defines who we are, sons of God, by faith in Christ, and to what family we belong, God's own family. One of the things that is observed most in orphanages is that babies are often silent. They don't cry out, they, they don't laugh, they, they don't make the sounds that babies make. The reason why is because they've learned that no one's going to come and answer their cry. That no one's going to come and rescue them from the pain or the hunger or, or the anguish that they're in. And so they become silent when they are loved and when they have a home. They begin to open up again and they begin to laugh and they begin to cry out. Verse 7, Galatians 4. Then says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
Notice it doesn't say you used to be an orphan and now you're a son. It says you are no longer a slave but a son. So you go from being in bondage to sin to the freedom of a son, but much more. And if a son, then an heir through God, where you have full rights and full privileges assured that believers have a home with God. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a home prepared for you by God. That you're a citizen of heaven. And it's been fully purchased and fully provided and you're no longer a slave. You're a son and an heir. Russell Moore says that our adoption is more about just belonging. More than just belonging. Our adoption is about the day when the graves of this planet will be emptied, when the great assembly of Christ's church will be gathered before the judgment seat. On that day, the accusing principalities and powers will probably look once more at us, former murderers and fornicators and idolaters, formerly uncircumcised in flesh or in the heart. And they may ask one more time, so, are they brothers? The hope of the adopted children of God is that the voice that once thundered over Jordan will respond one last time, they are mine. They are now. See, if you are an heir, you, your, your, your future is assured. You're set because of God. What has God done? God has given us a home. If you are in Christ, you have a home with God. You have been brought into his family forever. You are safe and secure in Christ. But what does God want us to do because of that gospel truth? What what does God want us to do? How does he want us to live? Most importantly, what does he want to do in us and through us because of the gospel? Three things stand out to me. The first is that we would live gospel-saturated lives. That we would believe that what Jesus did and that would be a driving force in every situation of our lives. We make, the li- we make life too complicated, don't we? We make it all about all sorts of things when really as a believer it's all about that God sent forth His Son to redeem us. As 1 Timothy 1.15 says, to save sinners. That's why he came. So in everything we ought to ask, in every situation, in every trouble, in every challenge, even in every time of joy, what does God's word say about it and how does Jesus transform it? How does the gospel transform this situation I am in? Live gospel-saturated lives where we preach the gospel to ourselves and everyone else all the time because life is all about the gospel the grace of God in Christ. But if you live a gospel-saturated life, you can't do that in a vacuum, and you can't do that just for yourself, and you can't do that from a comfortable, easy chair. You must, number two, engage in sacrificial service. Engage in sacrificial service. That's action at a cost. That's action that actually hurts because it costs you. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, Paul said, I am most willing to spend and be spent for your souls. 
God wants us to engage in sacrificial service. God wants those whom he has made a home for, those whom he has redeemed, to engage in sacrificial service, action at a cost. Jesus spoke of the merciful in Matthew 5, 7. He said, blessed are the merciful. James, his brother, echoed that sentiment in James 1, 27, when he said that pure and undefiled religion is this, that one visit widows and orphans in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. That is mercy in action. Those merciful commands, those merciful instructions really came from Exodus 22. Go with me there, Exodus 22. Exodus 22 verse 21 says this. Here's what God says. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. You shouldn't wrong a refugee or or an alien and oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn against you. And then he says, don't mistreat the poor. Here is God's heart going out to the most vulnerable, those who cry out for help, those who cry out for a home with God and have no home and have nothing. Sojourners and widows and orphans and the poor. So here's what I think. If, 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 if we believe the gospel and we live gospel-saturated lives and we want to engage in sacrificial service that costs, then here's what I believe. Every Christian should adopt. And now that I have your attention, let me tell you what I mean. I think every Christian should adopt. Think about what it means to adopt. It means to provide a home. It means to provide a place for a son. Every Christian should adopt everyone God puts in their life and make room for others. Do you know there are husbands abandoning their wives left and right? Do you know there are parents abandoning their children? Even some who profess faith in Christ will abandon their kids spiritually by saying, it's the church's job to bring my kids up spiritually. They'll abdicate their role and make their kids spiritual orphans. Sojourners and widows and orphans and the poor. But you know what? First and foremost, are you married? Then your spouse needs to be adopted by you. Do you have children? Your children need to be adopted by you. You need to accept them. You need to receive them. You don't want to reject them or abandon them. Both emotionally, physically, spiritually. We need to provide a home for people. Now, it might be that God is calling you to adopt a child who is not your naturally born child. It might be that God is is calling you to be a foster parent or to help others who are going to do that or, or adopt to help them even financially because it is more expensive to adopt a child than to have a natural born child. Here's a man who's got five natural born kids who have not adopted any kids legally that way saying that every Christian should adopt because we need to adopt everyone God puts in our life and make room for others. Not everyone can do everything. But everyone can do something that God calls them to do. I think about Randy Clark. And I think about him in relation to sojourners and widows and orphans and the poor. Here's Randy Clark, a guy from our very own church, who I didn't really know very well when he went to South Africa. 
I had been getting to know him. I liked him. I admired him. I loved his heart for gospel ministry. I loved the fact that we were, were privileged to send them out as a church. But I saw him firsthand in a new environment. And here's what happened. Here's a man who taught school for 17 years. Here's a man who did construction before that. And he went to South Africa and he said, Lord, what, what could I do? What do you want me to do? And he opened his eyes and he looked around and he saw needs all around. And he went to a school in Sunnyside, in, near, in Pretoria, and he said, can I help out? I'm a school teacher. They said, sure, why not? He starts helping out. The next thing you know, he asks them, hey, can we start a kind of an after-school Bible club called Awana? They're like, sure, why not? Kids are hearing the gospel now. Parents are hearing the gospel now. He's reaching out to the poor in Sunnyside and Salvacop, refugees. He's, he's reaching out to sojourners like Claudius, help building them a home. You know, Claudius is like, feels like the richest man on the block, and he's got like a 12 by 12 one-room house with one door, one window, and corrugated steel for walls and a roof. Brick floor. Most have dirt floor. Think about in Lesotho, uh, the church that we were helping to build, that you could put three of them in this room. The church they've been renting is a mud hut church with a thatch roof with a hole in the top. And they say when it rains, they just all get up against the walls. I think about Nixon and his family. Nixon is a seminary student who's working at Living Hope Church. And they invited us over to their apartment one afternoon. And we jam-packed like 15 or 20 people into this tiny little room. And they cooked us this amazing African meal. And it was hot. And it was stuffy. And it was crowded. And all of us were thinking, wow, they live in this tiny little apartment. And then we left and I found out that three families live in that apartment. Three families sharing this little place and this little kitchen and a little bathroom because that's what they can afford. I think about Randy Clark uh, as reaching out to sojourners. I also think about him uh, loving widows because he married Susan who was a widow. I think about him loving orphans because he adopted five. God has directed his heart towards the most vulnerable around him and it has spoken to my heart regarding looking for the most vulnerable where I live. I think about Jesus talking about the merciful and I wonder who are the merciful and I know who the merciful are. It's not just those who feel merciful for a moment and do something that seems merciful and then goes back to selfishness. That's someone pretending to be merciful the merciful are those who are so affected by god alleviating their sin-induced misery that they do something to tangibly alleviate others sin-induced misery see a ministry of mercy flows from mercy saved hearts so i say everybody needs to adopt the people god puts in your life and then bring more people in bring more people in last thing You've got to love Jesus more than life itself. Jesus, Colossians 3, 4, it said, is our life. He's the life of believers. So to do that, to love Jesus more than life itself, we've got to die to self. Steve Lawson said, the world says you must live before you, you, you must live before you can die. Jesus says we must die before we can live. That is, we must die to self and die to the world. 
Chris Woolley, one of the speakers at the Together for Adoption conference, said, God desires our death. Desires our death. We have many opportunities to die. So I'm going to ask you four questions related to four key numbers that I'm going to give you. Here's the numbers. 13, 19, 20, and 1. 13, 19, 20, and 1. And as it relates to God's adoption of believers and, and God's heart for the most vulnerable and dying to self, one of the beautiful examples of dying to self to me is Josh and Marta Mack. Here's Marta who speaks of, of bringing home Mufamuzi, who says, you know, if we knew the whole story, we probably wouldn't have adopted him. It, 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 he, he, was, he was abandoned. His mom and him um, were, were, were like on their deathbed. His mom got better and left the hospital that they had been put into. He's HIV positive. All his medications make him have a very runny stomach, if you know what I mean. Every morning and every afternoon when he would wake up from a nap or from sleep at night, he would be drenched in diarrhea. And so Marta would, would, would try to bathe him and he would fight her off. Just like us, fighting God off. He's wanting to forgive us of our sins, wanting to shower mercy on us, and we love our sin more and push him away. She talks about how much Mufamuzi has taught them about the gospel and about Jesus. But as it relates to God's adoption of believers and God's heart for the most vulnerable, let me, let me bring to you the number 13. That's the number of years that I would not fly because I was afraid to fly. I had flown thousands and thousands of miles before them, but in, in the year 2000, I said, I'm not going to fly anymore. And it wasn't until this trip that I flew 22,000 miles and Jesus conquered my fears. But what fear does God want you to push through? Think of Matthew 14, 27, when Jesus is walking on the water to his disciples and they're afraid and he says, take courage, it is I, be not afraid. What fear might be in your life that you're, that you're holding on to that you need to push through the number 19 is important as well while we were in south africa we they rented a van for us it was a 10 passenger van but one morning i got the opportunity to go from living hope church to salvacop about 15 minutes away and pick up a bunch of the refugees from zimbabwe and congo that come and 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 worship at that church that has 12 different ethnicities represented which is very uncommon here and in south africa and as we were piling 19 people into the van, I, I knew that things were different because they smelled different, they looked different even than the black South Africans. They're treated differently in that culture. They're living in shacks. And I thought about the bigotry and the discrimination and the exclusion that it's very easy for even people of Jesus to, to hold on to very tightly and say, no, Lord, those people can't come to my church. The last time I checked, it was Christ's church. And the last time I checked Re Revelation 5, 9, Jesus is calling people from every tribe and nation and tongue to be in his kingdom. Living Hope Church in South Africa is practicing that now. We should be practicing that now. 19 people. What, who, excuse me, who does God want your heart to change towards? Maybe it is your spouse. Maybe it is your kids. Maybe it is your neighbors. Maybe it's someone in this church. 
Or maybe it's someone that you don't even know, but you don't like the color of their skin or the way they look or how they smell. What, who does God want your heart to change towards and show Christ's love to? And then we get to the number 20. We took 20 boxes of goods to South Africa and we gave and blessed the baby home and the missionaries with all these goods. And it was good baggage we brought and we left. But most of us are carrying around baggage in our lives that's sin that God doesn't want in our lives. And so the question is, what sin baggage does God want you to leave behind? Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not subject again. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Romans 6 says, Let not sin reign in your bodies to make it obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Sin will have no dominion over you. Christ has dominion. And the last number is the most important one. The number one. Number one. And the question is, is your one hope truly in Jesus? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the one who by the gospel welcomes us and receives us as loved children. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel disciplines us and prepares us for eternity as heirs. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel speaks truth to us and shows us how miserable we are in sin and how glorious Christ is. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel shows us that we were born in death and then shows us by free grace that we are adopted for life. Lord, may this be true of every person who hears these words. For those who do not believe, I pray, Lord, that they would recognize their sinfulness, that they would recognize your goodness and believe in the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross for sin and be saved. For those who name the name of Christ, I pray that our one hope would truly be in you and not our comfort, not our own ideas, but yours. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.